Alright, so I haven't done this in a while, but today we're going to be doing Chapter 3 of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. On this particular Thursday, something is moving quite quietly through the ionosphere, many miles above the surface of the planet. Several somethings, in fact. Several dozen huge, yellow, chunky, slab-like somethings. Huge as office blocks, silent as birds. They soared with ease, basking in electromagnetic rays from the star of Sol. Biding their time, grouping, preparing. The planet beneath them was almost perfectly oblivious of their presence, which was just how they wanted it for the moment. The huge yellow something went unnoticed. At Goonhelly, they passed over Cape Carnival without a blip. Wimera and Jodrell Bank looked straight through them, which was a pity, because it was exactly the sort of thing they'd been looking for all these years. The only place they'd register at all was a small black device called a subethosensomatic, which winked quietly away to itself. It nestled in the darkness of a leather satchel which, which Ford Prefect habitually wore slung around his neck. The contents of Ford Prefect's satchel were quite interesting, in fact, and would have made any Earth physician's eyes pop out of his head, which is why he always concealed them by keeping a couple of dog-eared scripts for plays he pretended he was auditioning for, stuffed in the top. Besides the subethosensomatic and the scripts, he had an electronic thumb, a short, squat, black rod, smooth and matte, with a couple of flat switches and dials at one end. He also had a device that looked rather like a largest electronic calculator. This had about a hundred tiny flat press buttons and a screen about four inches square on which any one of the million pages could be summoned at a moment notice. It looked insanely complicated and this was one of the reasons why the snug plastic cover fitted into it had the word don't panic printed on it in a large friendly letters. The other reason was that the device was in fact the most remarkable of all books ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The reasons why it was published in the form of a micro-sub-meson electric component is that if it were printed into a normal book, an interstellar hitchhiker would require several inconveniently large buildings to carry it around in. Beneath that, in Ford Prefect's satchel, were a few ballpoints, a notepad, and a largest bath towel from Marks and Spencer's. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has a few things to say on the subject of towels. A towel, it says, is about the most massively useful thing an interstellar hitchhiker can have. Partly it has a great practical value. You can wrap it around you for warmth as you bound across the cold moons of Jagalon Beta. You can lie on it in the brilliant marble-sanded beaches of Sangataria's Five, inhaling the beady sea vapors. You can sleep under it beneath the stars, which shines so redly on the desert world of Cacophon. Use it to sail a mini-raft down the slow, heavy river moth. Wet it for use in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Wrap it round your head to ward off noxious fumes or avoid the gaze of ravenous bug-bladder beasts of Trollin, a mind-bogglingly stupid animal. It assumes that if you can't see it, it can't seek you. Draft is a bush, but very, very ravenous. You can wave your towel in emergencies of distress signal, and of course dry yourself off with it, It seems if it seems to be clean enough. More importantly, a towel has immense psychological value. For some reason, if a strag, a strag is a non-hitchhiker, discovers that a hitchhiker has his towel with him, he will be automatically assumed 
that he is also in possession of a toothbrush, washcloth, soap, tin of biscuits, flask, compass, map, ball of string, gnat spray, wet weather gear, spacesuit, etc., etc. Furthermore, the Strag will then be happy to lend the Hitchhiker any of these or a dozen other items that the Hitchhiker might accidentally have lost. What the Strag will think that is that any man who can hitch the length and breadth of the galaxy, rough it, slum it, struggle against terrible odds, win through, and still know where his towel is, is clearly a man to be reckoned with. Hence a phrase that has been passed into Hitchhiker's slang as in, Hey, you sass, that hoopy forward prefect. There's a fruit who really knows where his towel is. Sass. No be aware of, meet, have sex with, hoopy. Really together guy, fruit, really amazing together. Alright guys, continuing the next segment. Alright, this is continuation of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Chapter 3. Nestled quietly on top of the towel in the Ford Prefect's satchel, a sub-ethosensomatic began to wink more quickly. Miles above the surface of the planet, the huge yellow somethings began to fan out. At Joppa Bank, someone decided it was time for a nice, relaxing cup of tea. You got a towel with you? said Ford suddenly to Arthur. Arthur, Arthur struggling through his third pint, looked around at him. Why? What? No? Should I have? He had given up being surprised. There didn't seem to be any point any longer. Ford clicked his tongue in irritation. Drink up, he urged. At that moment, the dull sound of a rumbling crash from outside filtered through the low murmur of the pub. Through the sound of the jukebox, through the sound of the man next to Ford hiccuping over the whiskey Ford had eventually bought him. Arthur choked on his beer, leaped to his feet. What's that? he yelled. Don't worry, said Ford. They haven't started yet. Thank God for that, said Arthur, and relaxed. It's probably just your house being knocked down, said Ford, down in the last pint. What, shouted Arthur? Suddenly Ford's spell was broken. Arthur looked wildly around him and ran to the window. My God, they are. They're knocking my house down. What the hell am I doing in the pub, Ford? It hardly makes any difference at this stage. Let them have their fun. Fun, yelped Arthur. Fun, he quickly checked out the window again, and they were talking about the same thing. Damn their fun, he hooted and ran out of the pub furiously waving a nearly empty beer glass. He made no friends at all in the pub at lunchtime. Stop, you vandals, you home wreckers, bawled Arthur. You half-crazed Visigoths. Stop, will you? Ford would have to gone after him. Turning quickly to the barman, he asked for four packets of peanuts. There you are, sir, said the barman, slapping the packets on the bar. Twenty-eight pence if you'd be so kind. Ford was very kind. He gave the barman another five-pound note and told him to keep the change. The barman looked at it and then looked at Ford. He suddenly shivered. He experienced a momentary sensation that he didn't understand because no one on earth had ever experienced it before. In moments of great success, every life form that exists gives out a tiny subliminal signal. This signal simply communicates an exact and almost pathetic sense of how far that being is from the place of, of his birth. On Earth, it is never possible to be farther than 16,000 miles from your birthplace, which really isn't very far. Such signals are too minute to be noticed. Ford Prefect was at this moment under great stress, and he was born 600 light years away in the near vicinity of Beetlejuice. The barman reeled for a moment, hit by a shocking, incomprehensible sense of distance. He didn't know what it meant, but he looked at Ford Prefect with a new sense of respect, almost awe. 
Are you serious, sir? He said in a small whisper, which had effect on the silencing the pub. You think the world's going to end? Yes, said Ford. But this afternoon, Ford had recovered himself. He was at his flippest. Yes, he said gaily, in less than two minutes, I would estimate. The barman couldn't believe this conversation he was having, but he couldn't believe the sensation he just had either. Isn't there anything we could do about it then? No, nothing, said Ford, stuffing the peanuts into his pocket. Someone in the hushed bar suddenly laughed raucously at how stupid everyone had become. The man sitting next to Ford was a bit sozzled by now. His eyes weaved their way up to Ford. I thought, he said, that if the world was going to end, we were meant to lie down or put a paper bag over our head or something. If you like, yes, said Ford. That's what they told us to do in the army, said the man, and his eyes began the long trek back towards his whiskey. Will that help, asked the barman. No, said Ford, and gave him a friendly smile. Excuse me, he said. I've got to go. With a wave, he left. The pub was silent for a moment longer, and then, embarrassingly enough, the man with the raucous laugh did it again. The girl he had dragged along to the pub with him had grown to loathe him dearly over the last hour, and it would probably have been a great satisfaction to her to know that in a minute and a half or so he would suddenly evaporate into a whiff of hydrogen, ozone, and carbon monoxide. However, when the moment came, she would be too busy evaporating herself to notice it. The barman cleared his throat. He clear heard himself say, Last orders, please. The huge yellow machines began to sink downward and move back. Ford knew they were there. This wasn't the way he wanted it. Alright, this is the second part of chapter 3. Next segment will be the third part. Alright guys, this is uh, chapter 3, part 3. Running up the lane, Arthur had nearly reached his house. He didn't notice how cold it had suddenly become. He didn't notice the wind. He didn't notice the sudden irritational squeal of rain. He didn't notice anything but the caterpillar bulldozers crawling over the rubble that had been his home. You barbarians, he yelled. I'll sue the Count for every penny it's got. I'll have you hung, drawn, and quartered, and whipped, and boiled, until, until, until you've had enough. Ford was running after him very fast, very, very fast. And then I will do it again, yelled Arthur. And when I have finished, I will take all the little bits and I will jump on them. Arthur didn't notice those men were running from the bulldozers. He didn't notice that Mr. Prosser was staring hectically into the sky. Arthur didn't notice that Mr. Prosser had noticed that there was a huge yellow something and were screaming through the clouds. Impossibly huge yellow somethings. And I will carry on jumping on them, yelled Arthur, still running, until I get blisters, or I can think of anything even more unpleasant to do. And then Arthur tripped and fell headlong, rolled and landed flat on his back. At last he noticed that something was going on. His finger shot upward. What the hell's that? he shrieked. Whatever it was raced across the sky in its monstrous yellowness tore the sky apart with mind-boggling noise and leaped off into the distance, leaving the gaping air to shut behind it with a bang that drove your ears six feet into your skull. Another one followed, and exactly the same thing, only louder. It's difficult to say exactly what the people on the surface of the planet were doing now, because they didn't really know what they were doing themselves. None of it made a lot of sense. Running into houses, running out of houses, howling noiselessly at the noise, all around the world, city streets exploded with people, cars skidded into each other, and the noise fell on them, and then rolled off like a tidal wave over the hills and valleys. Deserts and oceans seemed to flatten everywhere it hit. 
Only one man stood and watched the sky, stood with terrible sadness in his eyes and rubber bungs in his ears. He knew exactly what was happening, and had known ever since his sub-ethosensomatic had started winking in the dead of night because his besides his pillow and wakened him with a start. It was what he had waited for all these years, but when he had deciphered the signal pattern sitting alone in this small dark room, a coldness had gripped him and squeezed his heart. Of all the races in all of the galaxy who could have come and said a big hello to planet Earth, he thought, didn't it just have to be the Vogons? Still, he knew what he had to do. As the Vogon craft screamed through the air high above him, he opened his satchel, threw away a copy of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Raincoat, he threw away a copy of Godspell. He wouldn't need them where he was going. Everything was ready. Everything was prepared. He knew where his towel was. A sudden silence hit the earth. If anything, it was worse than the noise. For a while, nothing happened. The great ships hung motionless in the sky. Over every nation on earth, motionless they hung, huge, heavy, steady, in the sky, a blasphemy against nature. Many people went straight into shock as their minds tried to encompass what they were looking at. The ships hung in the sky much the same way the bricks don't, and still nothing happened. Then there was a slight whisper, a sudden spacious whisper of open ambient sound. Every hi-fi set in the world, every radio, every television, cassette recorder, woofer, tweeter, mid-range driver in the world quietly turned itself on. Every tin can, dustbin, window, car, wine glass, every sheet of rusty metal became activated as an acoustically perfect sounding board. Before the earth passed away, it was going to be treated to the very ultimate in sound replication, the greatest published public address system ever built. But there was no concert, no music, no fanfare, just a simple message. People of Earth, your attention please, a voice said. It was a wonderful, wonderfully perfect quadraphonic sound with a distortion of so low as to make a brave man leave. This is Prostonic Vogon Jets of the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council, the voice continued. As you will no doubt be aware, the plans for development of the outlying regions of the galaxy require the building of a hyperspatial express route through your star system, and regrettably, your planet is one of those should be demolished. The process will take slightly less than two of your Earth minutes. Thank you. Alright guys, the ending in the next segment. Alright guys, this is the last segment of Chapter 3. Thanks for listening so far. The PA died away. Uncomprehending terror settled on the watching people of Earth. The terror moved slowly through the gathered crowds as if it were iron fillings on a sheet of board and a magnet was moving beneath them. Panic sprouted again. Desperate, fleeing panic. But there was nowhere to flee to. Observing this, the Vogons turned on their PA again and said, There's no point in acting all surprised about it. All the planning charts and demolition orders have been displayed in your local planning department in Alpha Centaurian for 50 of your Earth years, so have you had plenty of time to lodge any formal complaint, and it's far too late to start making a fuss about it now. The PA fell silent again, as it echoed and drifted across the land. The huge ship turned slowly in the sky with easy power. On the underside of each, a hatchway opened, an empty black square. By this time, somebody somewhere must have manned a radio transmitter, located a wavelength, and broadcasted a message back to the Vogon ships to plead on their behalf of their planet. Nobody ever heard what they said. They only heard the reply. 
The PA slammed back to life again. The foy was annoyed. It said, What do you mean you've never been to Alpha Centaurian? For heaven's sakes, mankind, it's only four light years away, you know. I'm sorry, but if you can't be bothered to take an interest in local affairs, that's your own lookout. Energize the demolition beams. Light poured out of the hatchways. I don't know, said the voice on the PA. Apathetic bloody planet. I have no sympathy at all. It cut off. There was a terribly ghastly silence. There was a terrible ghastly noise. There was a terrible ghastly silence. The Vogon constructor fleet coasted away into the inky starry void. Alright guys, that was the end of chapter 3. Hopefully tomorrow I'll be chapter reading chapter 4. Thanks for listening this entire time. And stay tuned.